Hello, and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. Last time we talked a bit about the theology of the Nicene Creed as it relates to the Father and the Son, and today we'll continue talking a bit more about that theology. So, where we left off was, on the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. What does that mean? So, initially this might sound like they're saying, well, we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that he was resurrected on the third day, so we believe it. But that's not actually what this is saying. So, in one sense, that's sort of what they're saying about the whole of the Nicene Creed. All the content of the Creed comes from the apostolic witness, which is recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But here when they're saying, according to the scriptures, this is actually referring to the Hebrew scriptures, to the Old Testament. So this brings up a couple of questions. A, where does the Old Testament talk about Jesus dying and rising again three days later? And B, why does that matter? Sometimes when people talk about Christ in the Old Testament, they're thinking about things about the Messiah, things about the nature of Christ in the wrong way. And they kind of imagine that the Old Testament is the criterion of truth which Christ has to measure up to to actually be the Messiah. It's sort of like a king dies and he doesn't have any kids and he doesn't have any brothers or sisters and he doesn't have any uncles or aunts. And so they have to find someone who is like the eighth cousin of the king twice removed. And then that cousin has to basically go through all the proofs and say, uh, my mom was married to this guy and this guy was the cousin of 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 the king, whatever it is to kind of prove that he is in fact the real rightful heir to the throne. And people imagine that maybe in the Old Testament, the king has to be of the house of David and born in Bethlehem. So the church has to be like, oh, was he born? In Be- okay, he was born in Bethlehem, check. Uh, and then they, so there are all these kind of like signs of the Messiah. And if, if the church can check all these boxes, then Christ must actually be the Messiah or Christ can be proved to be the Messiah to the rest of the world. But that's not actually how the early church read the Old Testament. It's not that Christ has to meet 14 different criteria to be the Messiah, and if he is, then he gets to be the Messiah. Instead, it's that, in fact, the Old Testament is primarily a book about Christ. It's a book about Jesus, not just about his coming in Bethlehem, not just about his coming at the end of the world. But in fact, you see these appearances of Christ over and over again in the Old Testament. This, again, is one of those things that we have to lovingly disagree with our Jewish brothers and sisters about. We're two different religions. Doesn't mean we can't love each other and work together for peace and all kinds of good stuff and have tremendous respect for one another, but we do disagree about the Old Testament. And for early Christians, the Old Testament over and over and over again was about Christ. So what in the scriptures would be a reference to Christ rising again on the third day? Well, you might look at something like Jonah, who descends in 
the belly of a sea monster to the depths of the bottom of the ocean for three days. He is entombed there for three days. After those three days, he rises back up to the surface and goes on to preach in the city of Nineveh. That might be one place where you'd look for the three days of Christ's entombment. But much more profoundly, you have something like the Sabbath. So the crucifixion happens just before the beginning of the Sabbath. It happens late in the afternoon on Friday. Friday night, as the sun goes down, the Sabbath begins. All day Saturday, you have the Sabbath. And then Sunday is the day after the Sabbath. Keeping the Sabbath is a big deal. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It is way up there on the list with like not having idols, not murdering, not stealing. So keeping the Sabbath is an extremely big deal. What is it to keep the Sabbath? The Sabbath in Genesis is the day on which God rests. He undertakes all this labor of creation, and then on the seventh day, he rests from his labors. And on the Sabbath, we join God in that rest. But what does it actually mean for God to rest? If God actually took a break, everything would just disappear. God is holding the entire creation in existence from millisecond to millisecond. So God rests on the Sabbath? God like goes on holiday? What, what is that about? So the early church would say that this understanding of the Sabbath, this rest of God, this was only fulfilled in those three days. So Christ dies towards the beginning of the Sabbath, at the end of Friday, that's the first day. Christ is in the tomb for the entirety of the Sabbath, so that's Friday night through Saturday at sundown. And then on the third day, after sundown on Saturday, Christ rises again. And that time in death, those three days or that one Sabbath, that is actually the true Sabbath. That is the only time that God has actually rested because he was interred in the ground, he descended to death, and he was truly dead with us and for us. So in the case of Jonah being in the whale for three days, or the sea monster, or the fish, or whatever, for three days, you have what's called a type. It's a type of Christ. It's a, uh, a kind of shadow of the reality of Christ, and it's fulfilled in Christ. In the Sabbath, you have a much stronger sort of type. It's almost like it's a statement which you can't even understand until you see it revealed or fulfilled in Christ himself. Jonah, you see, he's a prophet, he's a guy, he's doing his thing. But the Sabbath, it doesn't make sense. It's incomprehensible until the veil is lifted away by Christ, as St. Paul says. And this is true not only in relation to the three days of the crucifixion, this is true for the early church on virtually every page of the Old Testament. So, Everything is telling you about Christ, not just giving you predictions of who Christ will be or where he's going to be born or how you'll know if you've really found the actual Messiah. Instead, it's like telling you about him, who he is, what he does. You can't really understand who Christ is. You can't really know Christ until you know him in the Old Testament. And as I've said before, this way of reading the Old Testament dramatically changes the relationship of the church to scripture. So if you are reading the story of the Battle of Jericho, where the walls come a tumbling down, you might be forgiven for asking, why is this in the Bible? There's this general, Joshua, who crosses through a river and 
he comes up to the walls of the city that he's never seen before. He's never met anybody inside. And they blow these horns. The walls come tumbling down and they rush in and slaughter everybody. It's a pretty bloody weird story of the murder. Of, I mean, if you were like a citizen of Jericho, you know, you just hear these trumpets, your walls fall down and then someone kills you for no apparent reason. That's a real drag. But if you're the early church, the value of that story is not primarily a lesson in ancient Near Eastern military history. The value of that story is that it teaches you about Christ. Because the general is named Joshua. Joshua in Hebrew is Yeshua. Yeshua in Greek is Jesus. So you have a general whose name is Jesus, and he crosses through the waters of this river. What's that river? It's the River Jordan. And not just any old spot in the River Jordan, but according to the history of the church and according, interestingly, to the history of Judaism, this is exactly the spot where Christ is baptized. The place where Joshua crosses is the place where John baptizes Jesus. He marches up to the walls of the city, these impenetrable walls, blows the horn of the gospel, and the walls come tumbling down and he rushes in to take over the city. He comes up to our hearts, which have these impenetrable walls of selfishness and self-protection, fear, malice, desire, and he blows the trumpet of the gospel and they come a-tumbling down and he rushes in to take over our hearts. It's also an understanding of what happens at the end of time. So you have the world in all of its seeming permanence, the last trump blows, the last trumpet blows, and everything, as Hebrews says, that's not permanent is shaken down, shaken apart, falls apart, and Christ comes to return as the king who rules forever over the new creation. So according to the scriptures is not, it's definitely provable from the Bible, so we have to believe it, nor is it, we read this in the New Testament, so it's definitely true, according to the scriptures is, this is what we've been waiting for. This is the fulfillment, the true revelation, the fullness of everything that we have been passionate about for these millennia. It's definitely not that everybody was waiting for a Messiah who would be killed and be dead on the Sabbath. That's literally the opposite of what everybody was waiting for. So if you're like, hey, we found the Messiah. He died on a cross and was dead on the Sabbath. People would be like, okay, well, that clearly is not the Messiah. That's Everything that the Old Testament says about the Messiah is not that. He's going to be this incredibly powerful ruler who's going to rule forever on the throne of David, so you got the wrong guy. It's not about proving. Instead, it's about knowing. It's about the revelation of God in its fullness being given to us in Christ. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. So this clause talks about the ascension we are big fans of the nativity, Christmas, big deal. We like the resurrection pretty well. Easter, you still get Easter eggs. Ascension Day kind of fell off the map. But the ascension is a really important part of Christianity. So Christ is resurrected. He appears to the disciples in different ways and spends 40 days with them, continuing teaching. And then he ascends bodily into heaven. Why does that matter particularly? In part, it matters because he doesn't just go back to being the pre-incarnate Word of God, the intangible, ineffable Son of God. 
he ascends in his human body. So it is a human body that enters into the life of the Holy Trinity. The heart of the Holy Trinity enters into God. There is a human body who is God, who is part of God, who is one one person of the one God. And it's not just any old human body. It's actually a wounded human body. When Christ appears to the disciples and Thomas is missing, Thomas says, I don't believe you guys. No, I won't believe unless I can see, I can put my finger in the wounds in his hands and stick my hand in the wound in his side. And so he appears to Thomas and says, look, here are the wounds in my hand. Here is the wound in my side. Go ahead, inspect away. It is a wounded human body that is at the heart of God. It is a human body like ours carrying the marks of nails, the mark of a spear. So it's not just that God can sympathize with us when we are wounded, when we are sick, when we are suffering. He is wounded eternally for us and in solidarity with us. If the incarnation were just kind of like this episode where God the Son, Christ, the Word of God, came down to earth and put on a human body and kind of walked around in this like meat puppet and convinced some people that he was great or revealed some interesting information to them or whatever. I mean, that would be fantastic, but it would sound a lot like pagan mythology. You constantly have scenes where Zeus gets a crush on someone and he decides to take her out on a date. So he assumes the form of like a bull or a swan or something. I use the term dating loosely. It's less consensual than that. And you have scenes where, um, you know, Athena will turn up at your doorstep as a, a humble old woman asking for shelter for the night, or some other goddess will dip your baby into the fire and he'll become superhuman, whatever it is, because the gods are kind of putting on these human outfits. There is, there's an illusion that they have become human. But that's not what Christianity is saying at all. It's not that God comes down, kind of plays human dress up for... 33 years, and then goes back to just like being eternally splendorous, it's that God the Son actually becomes human. And now a human body is part of God, which is impossible to wrap your brain around. I once heard someone say, you know, if there's life on other planets, I think that there was probably an incarnation on those planets too. And there is a a Zork from the planet Nebulon 8625, who's an incarnation of God, and a, an Ewok incarnation of God, and a Chewbacca incarnation of God. But that's not Christianity. So this moment where God the Word, the Son of God, becomes a little tiny human baby in Palestine, this is not this illustrative episode or a brief phase in the life of God. This becomes eternally true that Jesus, this man, is eternally God the Son. This is the one who sits at the right hand of God. This is the one who exercises the power of God. This is the one who will then come to judge the living and the dead. We're sometimes tempted to think of the last judgment as a kind of like Judge Judy moment, where Christ is sitting on the bench, maybe with some kind of powdered wig or ruff or something, and you have me before the bench, and Christ is like looking in the book, like, okay, yeah, you did this thing wrong on March 3rd, 1984, and you, you're, kind of, you're pretty good on March 16th, uh, 1997. 
In the balance, you're going to get punished for these 43 things and rewarded for these 67 things the rest of your life. Pretty insignificant. In the balance, I guess since you got 67 right, 43 wrong, you get into heaven. That has nothing to do with what the last judgment is. In part, we don't understand the last judgment because we're just mortals and we're talking about this eternal, inconceivable thing. But in part, um, also, in Hebrew, the word for judgment, mishpat, doesn't mean Judge Judy. Literally, it means reordering, correctly ordering, rearranging, putting everything back in its proper place, putting everything back as it should be. So the operative metaphor, even if you want to get really legalistic, is not a criminal trial. In a criminal trial, you have the judge sitting on the bench, you have a book of laws, and you want to see whether or not the person standing before you obeyed the laws or broke the laws. And if they obeyed the laws, then you let them go home. If they broke the laws, then you want to give a corresponding punishment. So you have a farmer, he's got some chickens, some of his chickens go missing, he suspects the famous chicken robber, he reports the famous chicken robber to the police, the police round him up, they take him before the judge, and the judge ascertains whether or not he broke any chicken-stealing laws, and if he did, then he's going to send him to jail. That's a criminal trial. But mishpat is a little more like a civil trial. So in a civil trial... You have the same farmer, same chicken robber, same judge, but the judge is not trying to figure out how badly a law was broken and how much the robber needs to be punished for it. He's actually just returning the chickens from the robber to the farmer. That's as far as a civil trial goes. It doesn't involve punishment. It involves reordering, correcting everything, putting things back in their rightful place. So he might say to the chicken robber, you need to restore the chickens and maybe also restore any income lost in egg laying time that the farmer suffered, whatever it is. But that's not as a punishment. That's not so he doesn't do it again. That's just that sort of restitution is just making everything right in terms of correctly rearranging everything to the state that it was before the chicken robbery took place. So in Mishpat, it's not a Judge Judy scenario. It is a scenario in which everything is correctly reordered. Does this mean the final judgment is no big deal? Definitely not. It means it's a huge, crazy deal. Because how much of your life has been absolutely perfect? How much of the time have you spent reflecting the image and likeness of God to the world? Like, how often are you like God? How often are you completely full of love for every man, woman, and child in the world? How often are you completely full of love for God? How often are you this oasis of peace for others, this oasis of prayer? If you're like me, the answer is not very often. So if everything in my life is rearranged to be correctly ordered, to be how God intended, I am going to be overwhelmed by how much... I failed. Like how much I fell down on the job of not not being Christ, not being uh, even St. Francis, of just actually being me, the me that God created. I usually do a terrible job at that. I'm too busy coveting. I'm too busy getting angry. I'm too busy being lazy and tired. I'm too busy being afraid of things to actually be this reflection of God that he created me to be. So, We don't really know what the last judgment looks like, 
some of the church fathers have said that in a sense there is going to be a book that is opened, but it's going to be the book of my conscience. So when I'm standing before the judgment seat of Christ, I'm going to be smacking my head and going, oh my gosh, and then I did that? What was I thinking? Here I am before the source of all love, the source of all peace, the source of all joy, who is with me the whole time. And I was focused on Facebook. I was focused on shoplifting. I was focused on murdering. I was focused on whatever it is that distracted me from loving God and loving my neighbor. And I'm going to feel like such a schmuck. But I'm not going to feel like a schmuck because God wants to torture me. I'm actually going to feel like a schmuck because God loves me so much. And that's a really big difference. And it may be that I will be so attached to the way I've lived the entirety of my life and all the things that I've focused on that the love of God won't really be enough for me. Like I won't want to be loved. I want to be respected. I want to have earned that love. You know, I want him to look me in the eye and be like, you and me basically equals, or if not equals, like you're, you're pretty darn close. I want to be liked. I don't want to be loved. Or I might want power still. I might want people to cower before me or to laugh at my jokes, or to think that I'm smart, or to think that I'm beautiful. There's an episode of The Simpsons in which Homer Simpson is throwing peanuts into the air and catching them in his mouth while watching TV. And he gets down to the bottom of his bowl, and he throws the final peanut into the air, and it lands on his nose and bounces off and rolls under the couch. And so he's down on his hands and knees, feeling blindly underneath the couch, and he grabs it. He feels it, he grabs it, and he pulls it out, and it's a $100 bill. And he says, a hundred dollars, but I wanted a peanut. And I think this is kind of like worst case scenario for meeting God. We'll say the love of God, eternity face to face with the source of all love and joy and peace and beauty and harmony and truth. I wanted a big screen TV. I wanted people to say, you were right. I was wrong. I wanted revenge. I wanted to go on a date with X person. I wanted whatever it was. And I don't really want the love of God. And just having the love of God may seem awful to me. Not just disappointing, but actually suffering. Because everything that I've worked toward, everything that I've put my heart into, everything that I trusted into is now completely gone and vapid and meaningless. And so everything that was my life has just dissipated. And it may be that under those circumstances, the love of God, the goodness of God, the glory of God might seem repulsive and like a cause of suffering, that the fire of God's glory might be for me a fire of torture. Not because God wants to torture me, God is just embracing me. But if you really want a hug from your Aunt Mabel, then a hug from Aunt Mabel is great. If you really don't want to be hugged by Aunt Mabel, then a smothering hug from Aunt Mabel and your senses being overwhelmed by her perfume and her face powder getting all over your face, that might be the worst thing you can imagine. If I were a huge Metallica fan, which I'm actually not, but if I were, and I took a friend who is not a Metallica fan to a concert, I might be doing it as the kindest thing that I can think of. You know, I'm going to, I value our friendship so much. I'm going to buy you 
a $400 front row seat to this concert. And you and I are going to have the best night of our lives. They're going to play all of Ride the Lightning. You know, they're going to play Creeping Death. It's going to be all the hits. And I might be in just an ecstasy of joy during the whole concert. It might be just the most thrilling, vitalizing, exciting thing that has literally ever happened to me. Just this thundering music coming right at me, being face-to-face with my idols. You might be rolling on the ground in agony with blood coming out of your ears because you cannot stand this noise. And it for you, it's just like literal torture and utter misery. But it's not that Metallica are playing two different sets, one for you, a really terrible set, one for me, a really great set. They're just playing their hearts out. They're playing the best music that they can to try and delight us. I love it. You hate it. One father of the church said that if you are like an old dry stick, like there's no love in your life, no charity in your life, no prayer in your life, no compassion in your life, no goodness in your life, when you're hurled into the glory of God, you might just burn up, turn into ash. But if you're like a bar of gold, if your life is all goodness, all generosity, all patience with people who annoy you, all forgiveness of people who hurt you, all prayer, and you're cast into the glory of God, a gold bar, when you toss it on the campfire, doesn't go up in a puff of ash. Instead, it gets hotter and hotter and oranger and oranger and redder and redder, and it actually starts to take on the nature of the fire. It starts to actually look like and reflect the nature of fire itself. And that if your life in this life is a life of love, a life of prayer, a life of goodness, a life of peace, a life of compassion, a life of charity, when you're cast into the glory of God, you might start to take on that nature of that glory. And this, it has to be said, is not a reward for good behavior. You don't somehow earn the nature of God through helping enough blind people cross the street or adopting enough stray dogs or whatever it is. It's not that good works somehow earn you a place in God's kingdom or earn you the ability to reflect the nature of God. Instead, it's just kind of who you've become. So it's not a question of rewards and punishment. It's just a question of cause and effect. So if you have an old silver mirror and it is covered with tarnish, it is just this kind of super dark gray all across the board. It barely reflects any light at all. But there's this one little spot that's been covered over with tape for the last 200 years, and you peel off the tape, and under that spot, there's just been no oxidization. And that one little spot is still this perfectly reflective silver surface. If you hold that mirror up to the sun, you're going to have a large part of the mirror that reflects no sunlight, and a little tiny part of the mirror that shoots out this blinding beam of reflected light from the sun that you can probably kill an ant with or fry an egg on the sidewalk with or whatever it is. In the same way, if your life is all selfishness, all desire for revenge, all covetousness for a nicer house and kitchen, all trying to get money, all trying to get dates, all trying to get whatever it is, then there's really not a lot there capable of reflection. But if there are some little bits of your life that are these little pools of generosity or patience or kindness or the desire to bring joy to others or forgiveness, whatever it is, any of these little experiences of the goodness of God, then that's already a place in your life where 
the love of God is shining forth into the world, where you are actually reflecting the nature of God, the glory of God. And before the throne of God, that little tiny sunbeam that hit that little patch in the mirror that was untarnished and reflected it into the world, that becomes a brilliant, blinding experience of the uncreated light of God, of the glory of God, of the love of God. Not because you get some brownie points for stuff you did, not because God likes you better when you do nice things and when you do bad things. God's love for every single man, woman, and child is infinite. God is love. So God, as frustrating as this is for most of us, loves Hitler as much as Mother Teresa, and God, as even more frustrating as this is for most of us, loves you just as much as he loves me. God has no favorites, and God doesn't reward anybody special privileges for being a great rule follower. That's not how it works. Instead, all that want to, all that have some experience, all that have valued reflecting the nature of God, continue to do that eternally as we are restored to the image of God and the likeness of God. It's not that we become like God in the way that you walk into the room and you're like, wait, which one's God and which one's that guy? And we certainly don't become gods. It's not that in heaven there's God the Father, then there's you know Bertie the God and Zeus the God and Larry the God. It's nothing like that. We are very much his creatures, his creation, but we reflect his nature, his image and likeness, as we were always intended to do. So a bit about rising on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and the final judgment. Next time we'll talk a bit about the second coming of Christ, his kingdom which has no end, and talk about the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. Thanks so much for being with me.